listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. Despite the fact that it's only 60 degrees in here. (laughs) We're not in New York City. I was looking at uh, some pictures that some friends of mine, I used to live in New York City, and uh, there were these pictures that friends were posting on Facebook. So in my old neighborhood, for instance, there was this picture of a couple of kids on uh, those saucers, which, by the way, are the silliest things. Whoever invented those did not have safety in mind. I mean, basically a disc that you could put your butt on and then go anywhere without brakes. Um, Anyways, these kids were sailing down 2nd Avenue on saucers. You know, no cars, just saucers. The coolest thing. Absolutely precious. And I guess it got me to thinking as I was looking at those pictures. Uh, I was uh, getting ready to pack the girls up and head to Berkeley to take care of a couple errands in Berkeley. And um, I started feeling so thankful, as I often do, as I come out of the Caldecott Tunnel. And I see the bay. And I just, I don't know, something about just the convergence of the my daughter sitting in the back, singing slightly out of tune, and uh, my other daughter kind of crying a little bit, but not really. It was punctuated with giggles. And uh, Allie was doing something else, but I'm driving through, and the sun, sun started to just kind of beam. And it was just one of those moments where you can just, just absorb it, knowing that it's temporary, that all of this is temporary. And that I was still very glad that I wasn't up to my butt in snow uh, saucering down 2nd Avenue. Um, Although that probably would have been pretty cool too. In my uh, experience though, uh, at Berkeley, uh, while I was there, I ran into an old friend. He's an old, uh, how would I describe him? Well, I've known him for years and years and years, and uh, somewhat of uh, of an old radical. And we, of course, got to the discussion of politics, and he started, as usual, started grilling me. You know, okay, Buddha guy. <laughs> I think one of the one of the things he started off with was. So what do you think of the, this is the obvious hit. You know, what do you think of Sarah Palin? 
huh, 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 you know, that type of thing. I think she's probably a very nice lady. What do you think? Knowing full well that that was going to turn into kind of a diatribe and so forth, I just kind of listened and smiled and so forth. And then we got to the issue of, uh, of uh, you know, U.S. foreign policy and stuff like this. And, and I, it was really a very, very interesting thing for me because I, I found myself, you ever feel a smile inside? You know what I'm talking about where you just kind of, it's kind of like just a glow <laughs> inside. I remember as I'm sitting here, I'm watching this, this guy who's kind of getting worked up. And I was just kind of smiling inside. And I had no idea what my face was doing, but I was praying that I wasn't showing any type of smug Buddhist facade, you know, that wasn't, you know, that that wasn't happening. I was just hoping that I was just, I was being a good listener and so forth. And then the big question came as, as he went through issues with North Korea, Iran, Israel, uh, uh, you know, uh, foreign, actually this was a good one, uh, debt, in relationship to the Chinese and so forth, and all this stuff just kept, you know, kept talking and talking. Uh, meanwhile, my girls were kind of getting squirrely. Uh, and, and he said, doesn't any of it worry you? And my response really kind of surprised me because I said rather flatly, nope. Doesn't mean that it shouldn't be cared for but I'm not losing much sleep over it. Certainly there are issues, to be sure, there are issues. And one of the things that a deepening practice could do is help us kind of just turn away from all of it and say none of it matters. That's not what I'm feeling, okay? It's that it isn't freaking me out. And it's not freaking me out because life goes on period. Life will win out, no matter what. No matter what. Buttons get pushed. Missiles fly. Life will still go on. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't stand in that very possibility with deep clarity. But if we're going to oppose it from a warlike position, we are merely adding to the toxicity. Can we approach war, whatever it is, can we approach disaster, can we approach whatever it is from a place of peace? Now, with that said, my response, that whole uh, no, I'm not worried about, probably was not the best thing I could have said in front of this guy. I probably should have, you know, white lied a little bit and said, you know, sure, sure, because he wasn't able to hear what I said. Instead, he kind of, I really kind of pissed him off. And again, it's not that I don't have, you know, very deep concerns about the world we live in. It's not that I'm not a political being for any of you who know me, you know, I, I, I'm constantly engaged in political discussions and things like that, always, you know. Economic, I mean, that stuff fascinates me. It's a, you know, it's, it's a place where my mind plays. And my mind's afflictions get to dance and express themselves fully. What's beyond all that, I totally trust. I absolutely, completely, and totally trust that no matter what, life goes forward. No matter what. And trusting in the universe like that 
which every one of us has within our, you know, it's, it's right there. It's right there for us, you know. Trusting in the universe like that allows us to, to meet up with those that don't trust in the universe with a much more open, much more expansive presence, a much more, a much more open, smiling heart. Um, my answer surprised even me, I think. Because it, what it must have sounded like, I'm guessing, but what it must have sounded like was, I don't care. I care truly, madly, and deeply for all of it. But that true, mad, and deep care is not something that inhibits a free-functioning feeling of openness. I'm not going to war. I'm not going to go to war with anybody in this moment. Now, next week I might kick ass totally, but, uh, you know, in all seriousness, it's like I'm not going to go to war. Does that mean if I'm not going to war, or if you're not going to war, if anyone decides they're not going to war, does that mean that they never take a stand? No. You can take a stand and be loving about it. Look at the great historical figures of our time and you can see people who took stands but were totally loving about it. Martin Luther King did not look at white society, for instance, as his enemy. As a result, he was able to move white society in ways that other activists couldn't. Mother Teresa moved us in her life. Her life itself moved us because she wasn't in opposition to anything. She wasn't opposed. She was engaged with deep clarity. And we see people, individuals, whether they're historical or they're contemporary, we might run into them. It's, it's all within us. It's not something that we necessarily need to aspire to. It's what's underneath everything all the time. So looking at our politics, looking at our stands on issues and so forth, do we cling to something because it gives us security? Or do we literally stand open and unopposed and it's also not opposing. Because that type of stance is immovable. And that type of stance ends up inspiring. Or it can. In my case today, my immovability just pissed my friend off. But that's okay. He and I still love each other. 
I just wanted to, I wanted to share that. Um, where are you holding? Where in your life are you just holding? Talked a little bit about this last week. That's your gold. Wherever you are right now, that's your path. Right now. It's not about getting anything, okay? It's not about getting anything in the future. It's not about ditching anything. Just where are you right now? That's your path. And if you pay full attention to it, it will lead you directly into realization. If you explore your path right now as it is, if you explore the stories of selfhood that you have right now, if the question was asked, we've gone through this several times, but it's still so helpful to kind of go over this again. If I were to ask you, who are you? You might say, well, I'm an attorney and I'm six foot three and I like riding horses. But does that really say who you are? Well, no. Um, who are you? Ah, uh, I am, hmm. And the digger we start, the deeper we start digging, the digger we start deeping. <laughs> you know what I meant? The deeper we start exploring, the more we start recognizing that there's nothing there. That the great lie are these stories, are these roles, are these literally these characters or little designs that we put on the mask of personality to help enhance our persona, to help us move through the world. And when we can get underneath that, when we can start to actually let go of that story, we can start to see who we are is something that's way beyond, way beyond any of those qualities, any of those uh, 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 thoughts, any of those convictions, any of those labels. You start seeing that there's something deeper. And we can carry our meditation into that spaciousness every single time. Every time. Just like we were diving into a, uh, a murky pool, but we knew. Anybody ever been to the Lafayette Reservoir? Okay. They're, they have these, uh, uh, we used to be able to sail when we were kids, we used to be able to sail these uh, uh, boats, lasers. It's a laser, it's a class of sailboat, single, single mass, single sail. And we would roll the uh, lasers down to the little launch when we were just kids, about 12, 12 years old. And uh, my brother Mark and I, he was a really good sailor and I was the worst, the worst sailor. Uh, I would screw knots up and it was really miserable, I'm sure, working with me. Uh, but we're, we're trying to launch the uh, boat into the water and our, um, the little trolley thing that it, that it would roll on, okay, ended up falling off the dock into, into the water. And my brother Mark showed this rather, it was, it was kind of a cool bit of courage. You know, he said something like, screw you, Mike, you get it, you know, type of thing. <laughs> Which, you know, typically, that, that's like the last thing he would say. He would, he, he would say, oh, I'll get it. Not, not this time. He was really pissed. And I think it's because he had some kind of ownership over the whole sailing experience, you know. And I was just kind of the tag-along guy who would mess things up. Well, so I messed this up. He's like, pissed off. And you go get it. And I remember thinking, 
he's right. You know, I didn't even put up a fight. So I, I, and you're not supposed to swim in the reservoir. So we had to do this without the rangers looking. And we were like at the ranger station. So I'm like, okay, well you stand up there, like wave your arms around. So create a, create a diversion. <laughs> so he, uh, <laughs> he's creating a diversion while I'm jumping in. I'm going down, 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 and I keep going swimming down, down, down. And I realize, okay, this is really hurting my ears. This is deeper than 12 feet. I know what 12 feet feels like. And I keep going, keep going. So I clear and I keep going, I keep going. How deep is this? And I come back up and I'm like, this sucks. <laughs> but I kept going down and I remember finally hitting that dirt and then kind of crawling around, crawling around. And then I come up, take a deep breath, you know, go back down. And you get, you get to the sense, you, you, you know exactly where the bottom is every time, right? Just keep bottom, huh? uh, still not there. Okay, come up. You begin to trust it. Meditation is the same way. And yeah, I did finally get the trolley. And uh, um, I did get in trouble um, by the rangers. They were very upset. But it, was, it, it reminds me of that sometimes in meditation. We can always go to that bottom. We become very, very familiar with it when we start to lose the story. When we start to just kind of, yes, I am a man. Yes, I am a father. Yes, I have all these roles. Yes, I have yada, 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 yada. But actually, I'm the space in which all this stuff shows up. And we can go there every single time we sit still. Every time. We can see selfhood show up as one of those stories. And Hey, hey, hello, hello, hello. Without getting bent out of shape. We don't get pushed and pulled as much. There's a greater stability. There's a deepening. And in that deepening, we tend not to lose sleep even over stuff as disastrous as global annihilation. Instead, we have a deeper clarity as to how we might be able to participate in trying to prevent it. some time this last week talking about um, how we can approach uh, this practice at a couple of different levels and how I tend to focus my teaching uh, from a wisdom perspective and that kind of heart follows. In other words, if we can get to a place where we start to recognize the temporary nature of all things, where we can start to you know, recognize that everything is interconnected, if we can, once we start losing this self, 
compassion very naturally follows. I still, you know, think this is the fastest way as I've seen it taught. This is the fastest way towards realization. I could be totally wrong, okay, but uh, it's 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 a it's a methodology that I just I feel most most comfortable most comfortable teaching. I would also say, however, that recognizing that everything is temporary and that everything is interconnected can also have the added effect of disengaging us from things, which is partially why I spoke at the beginning about how it's so so important for us to, you know. Uh, engage in the world rather than disengage that that this practice actually doesn't keep us from the world it actually allows us to participate in it from a place that's unhooked with that in mind um, if you are let's say totally unhooked you're totally uncaught by everything you are in a bliss state 24 7 there's another trap right there. Meaning that you could very easily fall into a space of, well, nothing matters. If everything is temporary and everything is interconnected and everything is okay, then there are no rules. Interestingly, this is exactly what Charles Manson said. Okay? And that's not the type of family we're really interested in cultivating with spiritual practice, okay? That in fact, rules are important. That, that we hold ourselves and others accountable. But we do it with a loving and open heart. Does that make sense? So that the difference is that what we're doing is we're actually engaging in the world very fully, okay? And we are holding others accountable and ourselves accountable, but we are also doing it, doing it in a way that comes from a very compassionate opening rather than a self-absorbed or narcissistic, narcissistic closure. That's where it's really, where it gets really, really sticky. The minute that we start going into, we take everything personally, we begin to feel like the world is out to get us or that we are out to get the world. There isn't balance in that type of relationship, and as a result, what happens is we tend to have kind of a, you know, an overbalanced uh, practice. And so the, um, the Buddha was actually really kind of clear on this. He, at, the, at the core of his teachings, or her teachings, non-gender specific Buddhists here, um, we have the four noble truths, okay, that life's a bitch, it's the first one, okay? The second one is, there's a cause to life being a bitch. There's an end to life being a bitch, and here's how you end the bitchiness of life. You didn't say it like that, but uh, you get the idea. It's just a creative flair right there, okay? What is, what is that fourth step? What is that, what is the, the way, so to speak? And so he referred to this as the Eightfold Path. And what the Eightfold Path does is it's not so much that it 
it shows that life is, you know, not a bitch or that life is, you know, that, that there isn't suffering, but our relationship to suffering can shift. And that's, that's key. The key teaching is how do we actually shift that relationship? If you've ever felt, for instance, that's very common, uh, where people are afraid to go near their negative emotions because they're afraid they will overwhelm them. I'm not even going there. That can oftentimes be a response, and I see it a great deal from where I sit, that people are in that space. I don't, I'm just not, I can't go there. And that's okay. You don't have to go there. However, once you develop the courage and depth of practice brings about a certain stability, and you begin to face these things, whether you want to or not, they kind of show up and they present themselves, you start realizing that these emotions won't overwhelm. They won't kill you, whether it's negative or positive. You allow your knees to get weak. You allow yourself to experience your kids in the back singing and screaming while you're seeing the bay, and you just, you're right there for it. Tears may come. Fine. Who cares? It's all becomes this, this flow state. Everything is in flow. Everything is temporary. Everything is fleeting. Everything is totally connected, interconnected. Okay? So how do we, how do we shift this relationship? Well, um, first of all, we, we begin to recognize that there are three we can kind of divide the Eightfold Path into three spaces. And we can look at it as wisdom. In other words, how we see things. We can look at it as various moral practices. We kind of touched on that a little bit last week. You know, various practices, you know, doing the right thing even when nobody's looking type stuff. And then the last we would look at as uh, meditation practices. And so for those of you keeping score at home, the Buddhist uh, uh, terms for these different areas are for the wisdom practices, we call it pana. Sometimes, we, you know, there are other, other uh, uh, languages that refer to it differently, but in the Pali, it's pana. The morality practices, sila, okay? And then the um, uh, meditative practices we call samadhi. 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 Okay? S-A-M-A-D-H-I. Samadhi. Okay? So, we look, at, we look at wisdom practices, morality practices, and meditation practices, and those then are split up. So, if we look at wisdom, which we spent a great deal of time talking about last week, we essentially are looking at what we call right view. In other words, how we view things. It's actually been shifted and altered and corrected. Aha, oh wow, type thing. And then we also have one called right thought. So let me go just through those real quickly. I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version of the Four Noble Truths, but afterwards, or excuse me, the, uh, the, the Eightfold Path. But after tonight, every one of you will be completely enlightened. So just hold tight, okay? <laughs> so after, after right view... Okay, which is you start recognizing that everything is impermanent and that everything is interconnected, that there's no such thing really as separation. We start saying that I'm in here and you're out there, but we also see that yeah, that's only partially true. 
I am here. My friend Greg is right over there, right? That's true, right? Everybody can see that. But aren't he and I also expressions of subatomic spin? Yeah? Aren't he and I mostly space? Don't he and I depend on the same air? Don't he and I depend on getting fresh water? Don't he? Greg and I depend totally on everything. He depends on me for his own vision. I could snap and jump up and take his glasses and throw them outside and then cackle wildly. <laughs> I'm a Zen master. <laughs> like that. And then he'd probably deck me. But he, that relationship is such that he, he trusts that I'm not going to go yank his glasses off or like poke him in the eye or something like that. His sight depends on me. Take that a step further. My life depends on you. My very life depends on you. My friend Michael might snap and like go grab, uh, grab, grab this little mallet for the bell and like kill me with it or something like that. I depend on him not to do that. My own life. Now these are extrapolations that may make no sense to you, but if you think about it, we depend on drivers on the road. Going home tonight, we depend on people playing safe, playing by the rules. We're all dependent on each other. Everything is interconnected. Okay? Any of us who have lived long enough recognize that. That's the right view. Okay? The right thought is, do we have thoughts of separation? <coughs> Excuse me. Are most of our thoughts about I'm in here and everything else is out there? Do we have thoughts that show up as unity, on the other hand? Are we in the deluded space of, I'm living here somewhere behind my face and everything else is out there? Or do we start recognizing that it's all one thing? That right thought, that those thought patterns, okay, begin to shift and with, with, uh, as we are supported by meditation practice. Moving into these spaces of morality. We have right speech, right action, right livelihood. If we look at right speech, we can go in one of two directions. The one that is open, okay, is supportive, is healing, is careful. And careful not just like, like, <coughs> excuse me, got this cough. Uh, careful as in full of care. Or is our speech damaging? Right speech, the kind that actually leads us into a shifting relationship with life is a bitch. We start to recognize that things are different the moment we begin to let this meditation practice carry us into this opening. Practicing non-harmful speech just for one day, try this, where you're not being critical of self or other. Just for one day, or try for an hour, if you really struggle to hold it. Just, okay, 20 minutes, just 20 minutes. Of... <coughs> this, is, this can be a really, really powerful practice. Okay, powerful practice. Right action. 
we have two kinds of action. If we were going to really, really break it down, we have the kind of action that is about gain and the kind of action that is about offering or giving. We have generous action and we have action that is greed, greedy in its orientation. Here again, another moral practice that can come into uh, uh, play here in your life. Practice a day of giving. You know, giving and not expecting squat in return. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Because most of us, you know, no, I'll, I'll give you. <laughs> right? That's not giving. That's, a, that's an egoic negotiation. You give in the hope that you're going to get something back as opposed to giving freely. Okay. And giving freely, that was the great lesson of the Christ. Giving totally, absolutely totally. Right? So, that's an action. Right action would be that perpetually generous gift. Okay? As opposed to the, the, if you will, unenlightened morality, which is, all, you know, giving for something. It's all about gain as opposed to letting go. Yeah. We then look at right livelihood. How do you make your days? How do you fill your hours? How do you, what is it that you do? Either as a business person as a, you know, uh, whatever it is that you how, do you, how do you make your living? Is it something that is about taking or is it something that is about leaving? And the Buddha was fairly clear on this that, you know, yeah, we have takers and leavers. Okay. Are you a taker? If you're a taker, the taker tends to struggle when it comes to awakening to that truth beyond name and form. The lever, on the other hand, is someone who is automatically in a bow space, so to speak. Now, for those of you who are, you know, busy uh, producing something like asbestos right now or something like that, or your, your arms dealers, if you have any arms dealers here in the room or something like that, you know, there's still time. There's But it does call into question, all kidding aside, it does call into question. We get to really examine how is it that we make, make our days? What are we giving to the world? Moving into meditation or samadhi, what we, we look at quite simply is just right effort. That's number one. We have right effort, right mindfulness, and then right contemplation. Let's go with the effort first. Is your effort as a meditator kind of diffuse and all over the map? Or is it something that's kind of focused? Do you have a little bit of discipline? Remember we were talking about accountability. The same thing applies for a meditative practice. Can we actually plug in every day? This is a very, actually very important thing. And a lot of people don't like hearing this. I want to meditate so it's comfortable. I'm meditating so that I can feel better. That's not it. We meditate so that we can consciously meet the stillness that lies underneath every single thing that arises. 
within our lives and within everybody else's. It's a way of plugging ourselves, believe it or not, back into the world. Is there an intention behind our practice? Or is it just, well, I don't know. <laughs> my husband's doing it, or my wife's doing it, whatever. <laughs> or, I mean, are we, are, we, are we in this for the right reasons? It's a great thing to actually question, why the hell are you here? <laughs> why do we do this thing called meditation? Okay. And a lot of people I know, like, sometimes uh, dokusan turns into confession, which is not what it's supposed to be, but where, like, you know, people come in, they, you know, if, uh, if the question kind of uh, uh, peters out, we're into kind of a conversation, I'll always ask, you know, so how's your practice going? Well, I, I, and then the guilt look kind of comes over their face, and it's always so cute because I know exactly what they're going to say. Well, I only pretty much sit when I come here. <laughs> It's like, oh, so once a week? How's that going for you? Not good. You know? <laughs> you got to sit every day. Straight up, just sit every day. Find the time. You know? Find the time. And let your intention be clear. Are you doing this to awaken? Or are you doing it to lessen your blood pressure? Try awakening. Use this life. Use this life wisely. Next, right mindfulness. I love this one. Right mindfulness is, I guess, I guess the way I've always kind of looked at it, but this is partially due to my training, I'm sure. Um, uh, you have a chance in every moment to be aware. Every moment you have a chance to be aware, especially life's tougher moments. Especially in life's tougher moments, you have a chance to be aware. Now, it might be a small, tougher moment. I am going to give you an example uh, confession tonight. I have, for some reason, I hit just like the mother load this Christmas season on maple sugar candy. <laughs> now, maple sugar candy, I have a weakness for maple sugar candy. The only thing that I'm weaker, that, that, that really gets me is chocolate. Next to that, maple sugar candy. And I don't like sugar, I don't like sweets. But man, maple sugar candy, that is like crack. <laughs> and so uh, I'm sitting, this is before, this is, I'm, I'm putting together kind of, you know, in my head what I'm, what I'm going to talk about. And I'm at my desk and I'm working on my computer. And it's like one of those silly moments where it's like, mm -hmm, uh, I realize there is an unopened box of maple sugar candies sitting right there. And I'm like, oh. And it's like, I suddenly have a soundtrack going on in the back of my head, which is, Wow, ba bow, bow, uh, ba bow, bow. You know, it's like, is he gonna go for the temptation? It's like some weird porn soundtrack in the back of my head, you know? You know, waka waka wow, waka waka wow, you know? And what what I did was I immediately, since I knew this was kind of what I was gonna be talking about, I I just was 
I just, I mean, I figured I'd be the full-on hypocrite if I didn't follow this. And what I did is I just watched it. All the way, I felt, where, where's that urge? Where's that desire? Is this in the forebrain? Or that, can, I, can I actually unpack where this feeling is arising? All of that stuff kind of, kind of came out. And it was absolutely the coolest experience. And, you know, there's nothing special about that. That's something all of you could do when, whenever you have that moment of like, oh, yeah. It's like you're jonesing for something, and it comes up, whether it's something small like that or something big that's something you want to avoid. Your feelings have been hurt or dashed by someone you love. You're feeling depressed over something that's going on, either in your life or in the world, whatever it is. We can begin to use these things, this mindfulness we can carry all of our meditative practice into every single moment. Whether it's good or bad, it's our path. Is this kind of making a little bit of sense? Okay, there isn't anything that can't be used for this. Nothing. The other thing about right mindfulness is that meditation ends up showing us, we, we begin to know um, beyond our minds, the truth that extends beyond this body, beyond this mind. We start seeing something, experiencing something deeper. We begin to recognize flow. We begin to recognize ease, grace. And we start seeing that, believe it or not, as the fundamental quality of experience. And the minute I say that, I know lots of people go, huh? Ease is the fundamental quality of experience? Yeah. Yeah. Everything else dances on top of that. And the meditation is actually what helps us kind of, it, I sometimes think of it like, you know, an electric car. You plug it into wherever the, you know, you just plug it in, recharges and then keeps going. That's exactly what meditation is in many respects, especially when it comes to knowing this truth beyond name and form, letting it kind of unfold. The space between our thoughts that begins to open up. We begin to become totally familiar with it, just like the bottom of the reservoir. We know exactly where it is every time. And then pretty soon, that dive happens whether we're sitting in posture or not. It can happen while we're washing dishes, really washing dishes, really brushing our teeth, really driving our car, really having a difficult conversation. And then the last aspect of samadhi we can look at is right contemplation or right concentration. And this always shows up, kind of as I was just alluding to, it always shows up as that ability that each of us has, even as we, you know, as I'm talking to you right now, of witnessing what's going on. And to point this out to you, you're witnessing right now, right this very moment. Can you be aware of the fingers on your left hand? What are they doing? Can you be aware of them? They might just be still. They might be touching something. You might be able to feel. That's witness. You're witnessing the experience of your left hand. 
Witness your face. How does your face feel? Is it tense? Is it open? Is it relaxed? You're witnessing it right now. You're witnessing this experience of face right now. Witness your mind. Can you witness a thought, even with your eyes open, as you hear me? Can you witness a judgment pass by? This guy's full of it. Or, wow, that was kind of cool. Or whatever it is. Can you witness the sound? That hiss of the world's worst heater in the back of this room. <laughs> Can you witness that lightness that came with that laughter? It's at the back of everything. It's behind, underneath, above, it's through everything that can possibly arise. This right contemplation, this witnessing awareness. It's always there. And so this means that samadhi is not something that is only ever seen or experienced in meditation, but actually samadhi is life. Samadhi is this experience right here, right now. And letting that kind of carry us through, we start seeing that this eightfold path is just a series of reminders as to how we can start shifting this relationship with suffering. Witnessing suffering is different than being beaten by suffering because you're witnessing the beating, aren't you? And that witnessing is open, relaxed, free, at ease, even if we're getting beaten up. You ever tried to respond to something from a place of rage and how unskillful it tends to be, right? We, when we respond from a place of rage, we tend to kind of, oh, sorry. Or even if we don't want to say we're sorry, or we, you know, we, it just brings up all this unconsciousness that's all about being bound, as opposed to consciousness, which is about being open. So I just wanted to throw this at you. Um, see what sticks on your wall. See what kind of holds. Um, I tend not to do a great deal of uh, you know, Buddhist uh, stuff. Uh, but I really wanted to kind of lay this out there because I think what you'll find is this, this work of, if you can kind of look at it as a pyramid, our morality practices are just living day to day, whether we are totally awake or not, are absolutely key to supporting then the uh, samadhi or meditation, okay, which are key to supporting the insights that come from this deepening wisdom, which are key to actually, we invert it, to supporting everything else. I mean, it's just, it's infinite. The structure of this stuff, everything supports everything else. Your meditation supports everything. So does really deep ethical behavior, supports everything, and wisdom supports everything as well. When I say everything, I mean it. It supports literally everything that we are. 
because it becomes a receiver for everything that we are. We become then a vessel and a vehicle for this free flow, a conscious free flow of the infinite in and out. We are a swinging door. Don't let it hit your butt on your way out. <laughs>so much I just want to share that this has been really a challenging holiday season for me and um, you know it's really good to come here tonight and kind of just be in, in the in kind of recover that place of witnessing I uh, had to put my dog down last week oh. you know it's, it's really like my heart I love yeah. her so much she had cancer and you know and then had another really hard experience that I, I heard a, a good friend of mine and um, and um, she has um, you know ended our friendship because of that and it's just ouch yeah I mean I, I I made my amends to her I apologized and she decided that you know she needed to end it so it's, it's been hard and isn't it bizarre then also and probably f to a degree frustrating to hear me say perfect <laughs> you know you know what i mean but but in other words the teaching is so clear on on all especially the dark stuff how it actually is forcing our path it's forcing this this deep potent directionality to how it is that we live and you get the simultaneous benefit of a bunch of people here that may not be your best friends, but they love you. That's what Sangha is. Mm. And that's how Sangha can work is this great container. You know? Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't know this guy. <laughs> I don't know this guy, but damn, man, they're helping my meditation. You know? Yeah. yeah I, the container here is, yes. is very helpful. You know? And uh, it's nothing to do but just be with it. Yeah. And it, it's been a rough ride, but, you know, it, like you said, it's all impermanent. Yeah. Yeah, even the bad stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Can you promise me one thing? What's that? Can I hang in there? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. You bet. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think I've asked this question before. <laughs> I think you answered. I think you answered it, but I was listening to an interview with Robert Thurman, who mm. mentioned. Yeah. Big Bob. <laughs> was that what you called I did, I'd never called him Big Bob to his face, but he and I had lunch together yeah, at San Francisco Zen Center. We had this incredible conversation. He kept, he, you know, he has a... It was a glass yeah, right? yeah, it's... And he kept doing this. He kept pulling at the... And then he would itch the lash, okay? And his nail would keep clicking against the eye. And so I'm sitting there trying to eat my rice, and I'm going, oh. you know? But I was so taken with him just as a person. I mean, he really is something special. If you ever get a chance to hear him, I mean, he just is, you just want to high five and hug him and everything else. I mean, he just, he radiates a majesty and magic and a cosmic giggle.
it's embodied in this guy, whether he's clicking his eyeball or not. I mean, he just, he's something else. I forgot my question. Ah, oh, damn. Um, oh, Sorry about that. Oh, no. He, um... <laughs> I'll shut up, Mark. How's that? <laughs> but he said that uh, he was talking about um, the media and yeah. how, you know, he was talking about meditation. And he said, mm. oh, this probably doesn't make sense to a lot of my brothers in, in Buddhism, but most of us, our minds are filled to the media. And he looked at advertising. He's basically saying, you're no damn good unless... You're not enough. But if you buy my product... Exactly, right. And then the other one is the news, which basically is all fear-based. Yeah. And I guess my, then he went on about some other stuff. <laughs> he was funny, but... Does it... Do you just kind of witness that stuff? Or, I mean, with the media, and we are in the media, uh -huh. do, you just, do you try to unplug, or you just kind of go... There it is, it's showbiz, don't let it. <coughs> well, you mean me personally, or what's the practice? Totally does make sense. I think what you're asking is, how is it with the media and the saturation that every one of us feels through the messaging we're getting through print, film, yeah. everything else, how is it that we develop clarity or something like that, I, I guess is where or you're... If it's causing fear and insecurity. Oh, sure. Good. Especially since, yeah, because what, what, what media tends to do is exploit um, the, the ego's, well, our unconsciousness. It skillfully, it consciously uses unconsciousness to get at ours, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's what a great ad person would do. A any great ad is going to exploit one's unconsciousness to lure you in, whether it's someone's sexuality and you immediately are like, <laughs> you know, or, or it's in, you know, maple sugar candy or, you know, something like that. Whatever it is, they're, they're trying to lure you in so that they can say exactly like you pointed out, but if you buy this, mm -hmm. exactly, okay? Now, witness that. If you're aware of what's going on, it can't hook you in the same way. It just can't, you know? It's good to unplug. Well, I, I mean... Or is that just hiding in a cave? I think, I, I remember Bob saying at one point um, during the conversation that he and I had that he looked at meditation, like the way he sometimes explains it, I, I believe it was he said he called it the TiVo wand. Boop, boop. <laughs> you know, you meditate and you... Doo -doo. You suddenly put, you just hold it. Doot, doot. And then you're back in, but you've created this, this, you know, you just, you put everything on pause mm -hmm. and you're reminded, oh yeah, there's so much beauty beyond that image. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I thought that was really profound. I still do. I, I still think, I think that's very, it's a very apt way of describing it when we can actually let our mind be a tool instead of being tooled by our mind, as I always say, you know, it's when we start letting the media inspire, you know, whatever it's going to inspire, but we are absolutely totally aware of what's going on, then it no longer can hold us. And we no longer can really hold it because we see what it's doing. Now, I say this as somebody who is, I mean, I'm living in 21st century East Bay, California. Okay, I see the same images. I mean, it's not like I walk around the streets in rags, you know. Uh, so 
So doing our best to letting, letting our relationship to media become a practice, just as our relationship to anything else would be, puts us in this space of you know, right action, right thinking, right contemplation, right, you understand? Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a great place for the Eightfold Path to kind of begin to reveal itself whenever we find resistance or we find, you know, kind of, well, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? Um, and in that way, you can start seeing some of the neat things also that come from, that come from the media. It ain't all bad. I know, uh, I'm, this is, I'm really biased and I'm not trying to be a shill, but I'm, I'm absolutely amazed at some of the stuff that I have seen recently come out of such corporatized networks as National Geographic Channel, uh, Discovery Channel. They, I mean, these are all owned by major profit-hungry corporations, yet, man, there's some great stuff on there. You know, PBS, which is not in the same space. Uh, I don't know what I would do without it, quite honestly. It's just, I mean, I'm just, every time I see, I feel like I learn so much, you know? So then I think, I think just looking very carefully at that dance for yourself becomes a really cool, cool uh, uh, part of practice. Yeah, great question. Keep asking it. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're about five minutes over. Sure, you bet. It's real fast. How long should we Two hours. <laughs> sit, sit. What I would do is if, if you're new to this, I would sit for 10 or 15 minutes. And I would do that. Uh, I'd try to do it every day. Okay? Yeah. Always best if it's same time. I would also couple it with some type of physical practice. So make sure that you're not just being a meditator, but that you are a meditator and you're also a physical being, okay? Mentally, I think it's really good also if you're really struggling with something in life. Meditation is not gonna cure that. It might shift the relationship, but sometimes Western therapy is one of the coolest things you could ever do to enhance meditative work and vice versa. Anyway, every day, looking at that in like 15 minutes or so, and then at some point in time, you're gonna wanna Jack it up a little bit, 25, okay? Keep doing that until you hit 40. Stop there, stop at 40. That's what I would recommend. And if you are really feeling like you really wanna turn the heat up, you could, you could do the whole hour thing or, or whatever. Um, but I, th I think 40 minutes is just an ideal time because it allows the mind to slow and then settle and then deepen. But usually that deepening doesn't occur until about minute 30. It depends on the person. But I've always noticed, for, I've been doing this for 20 some odd years. It's always been that way for me. Between minute 30 and 40 is when the bottom falls out. What's the physical practice? Uh, lift weights, walk, <laughs> I'm serious, hike. Do something so your body is, you know, you integrate, integrate a physical body practice with a mind practice like this. I think that actually enhances everything. Do you mean simultaneously or same? No, 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 no. So, you, yeah, that would be pretty cool, actually. If you, <laughs> you know, Britt could do it surfing, except she probably could do it. So, yeah. Anyway, thanks for coming tonight.